Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm so excited because I'm here talking with Tatiana Folk, who is the host of the Bedside Podcast. We're doing a collaborative episode. So fun. Thank you for doing this with me. Yeah, of course. I'm obsessed with doing talks with you. It's so funny. We we've now done two talks together. Mm-hmm. One for DVF, we did one at the Brightly last month, was it, mm-hmm. or a couple of weeks ago? And we still haven't sat down and recorded, but I'm so happy we're finally come around to it. Um, and yeah, I'm here with Dr. Kate Balistrieri, and we just like our I love our synergy together and just how we know how we can riff off one another. And I'm really excited to record with you today. Me too. Me too. It's really seamless whenever we are having a conversation. I just love it. So thank you again for the invitation to do this. Yes. So I know we talked a lot about what we were going to use this episode for, and you were so gracious in pooling your community and seeing what kinds of questions they have for both of us about sex, sexual expectations, and we've got such a great list. Yes. I feel like one of the biggest things and I'm so happy to have you here too and chat with a sex therapist, is like a lot of people just have so many questions about sex and intimacy and relationships. And I'm laughing because I'm just like, the abyss is just never ending, (laughs) as you know. And a lot of people don't know where to start. And I guess like before we get into so many of like our listener Q&A and all the the commonly asked questions that we get, I actually want to kick it off with you and kind of just get a deeper understanding of kind of the craft of sex therapy, because I really do feel like it is such a craft, and also get an idea of what, you know, how people can kind of disarm the concept of sex therapy and and enter into the space in a comfortable way that feels approachable, bring it up to a partner, even just like feel like they can go themselves. Like how how can we kind of even begin that first step? I really love this question and agree. It's something that comes up so frequently for people. I think for two reasons. One, we still stigmatize mental health in such big ways. Even though that's changing, there are a lot of folks who still feel really nervous and vulnerable with the experience of therapy. And then when we add sex into the mix, where people already feel so much more vulnerable a lot of the times, and also have a lot of fear around the stakes, 
that can can be sometimes attached to the conversations about sex, it can really create a lot of barriers for people being willing to come in and open up conversations with within themselves with a therapist or with their partner with a therapist. But I think a, a great way to bring the subject up for yourself and with a partner is really to start thinking about what does sex mean to you? How are you weighing it in your life? What place does it hold in the domain of your relationship or within your own experience of pleasure and self-exploration? And when you start to think about what sex means to you and the the labor that you've given it, um, the meaning that you've given it, the functions that you've given it, it starts to give you a little bit more room to explore, well, what can be sex? What, what can be the meaning of sex for me in my life or in our relationship? And that starts to open up conversations because it creates possibilities and it creates a, a collaborative conversation instead of a conversation based on what's not working What's going wrong? Why am I not happy? Which is, I think, a lot of the fear that people have in getting started in sex because once we speak it, that means it's true. And that can bring up a lot of pain or anxiety for folks in their partnerships. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to get an understanding too of do you feel like a lot of people come in with like one understanding of sex and intimacy and then you're reframing it um, in a different way? Like, do you feel like a lot of people have a same one way, I'm doing air quotes, of looking at what <laughs> sex is? Or do you feel like everybody has a kind of different definition of it um, from the get-go? Absolutely. People attach different meanings to sex. They have different definitions of it. They have different reasons for wanting it. But we tend to operate with a lot of assumptions that our definition and reason for sex is the same as someone else's. And I think that's in large part because we don't get a lot of sex education in this country. So there's not a lot of understanding. And so we don't operationalize what we don't have a language for. So coming into sex therapy gives people a lot of room to build out a more uh, involved blueprint for sex and to share some vocabulary and some language together, which gives them a lot of opportunity to build connection in the space. Wow. I actually love that. <laughs> You're so good at explaining like <laughs> these larger concepts. And I, I really love that um, way of thinking because you're taking a very narrow-minded approach, which is none of our faults. Like you said, it's our system. It's a lot of the sex education, a lot of the puritanical dialogue that we have specifically in the United States that makes it feel so confined. But I love the notion of like coming into a space and just being able to expand definitions and ideas and ways of connection. So you're actually giving, you know, we've spoken about this before on a couple of our talks where there's just not even enough language for intimacy. Right. It's just, it's so constricted. <laughs> it is. And there's so much fear around even finding those words. So people are not incentivized to, to build vocabulary until the pain point is such that it's unbearable. Yeah. And that is what brings a lot of folks in. They start feeling disconnected from their sexuality. They start feeling disconnected from their partner or from people they're dating. And they really are, are looking to plug back into something that is vitality, that is energy, that is effervescence. And I think that's a really important um, and valuable place to be in life. And so when couples are in that space, a lot of them feel like, wow, we're here and this is a dark place in our relationship. 
But like every dark night of the soul, on the other side is something really fruitful if they're willing to lean into that space. Yeah. I love that so much. It's also reminding me, even like the other night I was talking to my partner and I was kind of articulating how I've been wanting to bring a bit more like connection into our dynamic in different ways. And I was like, <laughs> I kept tripping over my words. And at one point I was like, I I just don't have enough language for this. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because I keep saying the word romance, but I'm like, I don't mean romance. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's just, it's so interesting the, you know, trying to really get to the essence of something can be tough. So this is why like having something like sex therapy can be so, so impactful because you can Mm -hmm. really dissect what you're actually trying to get after. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing. I actually still have yet to go to sex therapy, which is so interesting as someone who podcasts on this matter and goes to therapy, but I haven't like fused the two together. (laughs) Interesting. Do you have any thoughts on why not? I think I just feel like I haven't entered a spot where I've I've wanted it or craved it or felt like I I needed it. Um but that's not to say that I feel like you need to be like I'm in a in crisis mode to to go to something like sex therapy, but I definitely see it in like my toolkit as as something as I evolve in my relationships mm-hmm. and stuff. I think it's so important. I for sure can see myself going. I think that you bring up such a great point, right? A lot of people go to therapy in a reactive way, right? In general, something hurts, something's uncomfortable. I need to to address something in my life. And that's what brings them in the door. And that's great if that's the motivation for them to come into therapy. The same is true for sex therapy. And again, there's no wrong reason to go to sex therapy um, if that's something that you feel would be interesting for you. I do think that it can be really fruitful for people who don't, air quotes, need anything, (laughs) but want to explore a different kind of understanding about their sexuality. So both paths can be really fruitful and both paths are completely okay. I love that. Thank you for sharing so much, (laughs) I guess. But the first one is really around communication. And I'm sure you get this all the time. (laughs) I get this question a lot as well, which is really how can I improve communication with my partner about my sexual needs and desires? This is kind of like what we've just been talking about and lobbing off, but I think it would be nice to get a little bit more granular around, you know, how can we initiate conversations like this? I think there's a lot of ways to initiate this conversation and it really depends on how you as a person like to communicate. Um, Some people don't know what they want or need, and they want that to be a a collaborative exploration with their partner. And that can be one way to approach the conversation, right? I'm feeling a little bit like I don't really know, but can we explore together? And other folks really know what they want or they need. And so they can come into their partner, uh, into the conversation with their partner a little bit differently and with maybe more precision. I saw this on TV or I read about this in a book. It really got me excited. Can we talk about Mm. it? Is this something that you would be interested in collaborating or participating with me in? Does it do anything for you? But I think it's so important to first establish a couple of things. One, have the conversation when you're both in a good headspace for the conversation. I don't recommend people do it during sex, right? Wait until you're finished with one sexual experience and then bring it up because introducing this, this idea in sex that I want something different is important if something's not driving for you in the moment, but opening up a big panacea of let's try other things can sometimes 
take the vibe in a different direction. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but also it's really important. And I, I, I heard someone else use this language and I can't remember who, but it was really beautifully said when you're talking about sex, it's a vulnerable state. So if you're asking your partner to be vulnerable in this conversation with you, start first, Mm -hmm. start by offering that vulnerability to your partner and, and be willing to say, can we talk about this? I'd love to share some of my fantasies with you. Are you open to it? Um, go first so that you're not doing that sort of like hit and run of, Hey, I want to try this thing. Boom. Are you into it? (laughs) And, (laughs) um, or saying, what do you want? And asking them to do the emotional labor first. Right. When they're like maybe not even in a space of thinking about it and you've right. been thinking about it all day. Exactly. <laughs> they're like, wait, where did this come from? What do you mean? I'm <laughs> I just want to eat my dinner. <laughs> yeah. I just got off a work call, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I love that so much. I totally agree. And I think like that's kind of similar advice I have too, which Mm -hmm. is really like leading with your own vulnerability first. Um, I love your tip on not really addressing anything sex related while you're having sex. Mm -hmm. Although I do love, um, and people have heard me say this on the podcast before on bedside, but for your listeners too, I love the idea of having the conversation and communication around sex right after sex. Mm -hmm. So when your feel-good chemicals are riding high, you've got dopamine, serotonin, all like all of the goodness is just you're in your afterglow of sex, if you will. And I feel like that's such a great time to recap sex. So um, I know the queer community refers to it as aftercare. I've coined it as kind of like the post-play talk. Mm -hmm. Um, But really where you get to be like, how was that? You know, did you like when I did that? You know, opening the conversation for just feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I love that time to infiltrate any sort of fantasies. Cause that's like, you both are on the same, you know, you're not missing each other where you're at when you're, um, outside of an intimate experience, you know, you're, bo- you're both coming right out of it. And I think your mind is there. So it's nice to each meet each other talking about any sort of fantasies that you have desires. I love that time. I find it so crucial. And honestly, it's so sexy. <laughs> oh, same. Um, that's like my favorite time and space to go deep with a partner and, and really kind of get into what was just happening and what did we really like about it. That debriefing phase that can happen during aftercare sometimes, um, but sometimes folks like to do it a little bit later and that's okay too. Like honor what you and your partner both need in terms of aftercare, but it's so important to give your t- yourselves that time to really bask in the ooey gooey neurochemicals. <laughs> yes, 100%. And and kind of going back to what you were saying about how all communication looks a little different. You know, some people don't even need to talk about it mm-hmm. per se. They they're they might be a little bit more physical, like they they like the cuddles and aftercare and just really like the the caring mm-hmm. nature of it. So I think um it's not uh, there's no pressure to have uh, verbal communication. Sometimes it's nice to just snuggle and and just feel like you're in one another's presence. Yes, love that. Well, let's talk about another question, shall we? Yeah, let's okay. do it. Um, the next person wrote in and said, I have a low sex drive. Is this normal? And what can I do to increase my libido? Ooh, I love this question. This is probably yes. one you get all the time. You probably do too. It's yeah. so common. It's so common. I mean, I have a bit of a hot take. I don't know if I necessarily believe in 
high or low libido. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's only high or low when you're comparing your libido to another person. Yes. Without a doubt. Because libido is something that completely ebbs and flows. It changes with what's going on in your life, with Mm -hmm. how stressed you are, with life events, with transitions, with just like where you're at. To me, it's like kind of also an indication of um, your health a bit too, like just your status of like how well you're taking care of yourself. I think for me personally, that that is like a big reflection. I'm like, I can tell if maybe if I am really stressed, like it'll be an indicator in my, in my libido. Um, but you know, I do, I totally agree with you. I think when we're looking at high and low, it is a comparative thing. And I love the idea that, and the permission that we can give ourselves, which is that, Libido can shift, our desire can change, and we have permission for it to change. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I actually l- like to embrace the changes of it because I think I know Dr. Ian Kerner talks about this, um, where he talks about changing different sex scripts, which is really about like, you know, how can you change your narrative around sex and what that means for you at a certain time in your life. And I think sometimes it can be a beautiful thing when there is a shift in your desire to really reevaluate what your sex script is because it keeps things fresh. It keeps things exciting and less like monotonous on almost. So yeah, I, I'm curious to get your take on it. I really love what you just said. Sometimes I wonder about whether or not someone's libido has changed per se, or whether they might be reaching a plateau in their interests and in fact might benefit from some novelty Mm. being introduced, right? I'll say that another way. I wonder if they're bored. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that that in a less professional way. Are you bored? (laughs) Well, I I mean, I can just say personally for myself, that's often what comes up for me when I hit that lower libido space. I'm like, I don't, Sometimes it's about not taking care of myself and being really burnt out with work. That absolutely is true for me too. But a lot of the time I just feel like kind of been there, done that. I need to change it up and maybe I don't know what that means yet. I don't know what new script or what new element or variable I want to bring in. So that's always a question I'm asking right away. But I want to just... um you know, for anybody who uh, gets PTSD around statistical language or research language, please um, feel free to opt out for the next three seconds here. But mute. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we we often go into this comparative place, which is a normative comparison. How does my libido rank compared to my peers? Right, the other folks around me, and that's where I say. Eh, not so real, not so interesting, right? Because we don't need to compare our own process with someone else's for it to be valid and healthy and okay. But where I do start to get a little curious is when folks have an ipsative shift. So an ipsative shift means, is my data different than my earlier data? So you're comparing your current to your past. And for a lot of folks, that's where the concern comes in. I used to have a higher libido. I used to want sex more. I used to do this. Or I want to do this because I think that would be more fun. And they're not quite in alignment with their their comparisons that they know their body is capable of and their mind is capable of. And that may or may not be a concerning point either, given everything that you just mentioned, right? Life happens. It's completely expected. 
that our libido is going to change over time and we'll have ebbs and flows. Um, but that's where a lot of folks start to get worried because yeah. it's different than how they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. What is your advice around that? Is it just like a matter of kind of accepting that our, like the human nature isn't fixed, that like our human experience is something that is ever changing? You know, I think people love, like, not love, but it's, it's, we have this innate instinct to like grip to this one identity of ourselves. And maybe we, we like this one identity of ourselves, the, of, of a certain level of desire we have. So, you know, what is your thoughts around kind of how to tackle that or maybe just be less hard on ourselves about it? Yeah. I really love the language that you just used. Human behavior is not fixed. The human experience is not fixed. We are constantly dynamic beings. So I think one of the places to start is to really understand and have compassion for the fact that it's, again, expected that you're going to have differences in how hungry you are, how tired you are, how interested you are in different things, including sex, and how much bandwidth you have for those interests um, based on the other environmental or internal things going on. So I usually ask people to get a little bit more curious about their life more holistically. What's happening with your diet? What's happening with your physical routine? And I'm not saying that people have to be in a diet or be super fit, but often when we are, when something's going on with our body and our desire changes, we do have some opportunities to see a difference when we look at what is healthy for our body. Um, what's your workload like? What are your finances like? What is your stress level like? Are you able to reserve the energy for sex or are you too worried about surviving? Mm. That's a real that's a real problem, right? It's mm. hard to be open and receptive for pleasure if you're trying to make it through the day. Yes. Right? Either because of your financial resources or stress in your home or you're taking care of a loved one or something's not going well in your relationship. So, I I want to look at all of these different dimensions, including someone's spiritual life. What's yeah. happening, you know, internally? What is their connection to something bigger than themselves? And where are there opportunities to create vitality in their lives and reduce stress? And that can usually be enough to start garnering some vitality again sexually. Mm, you said something, you said amazing golden nuggets in there, but you said something <laughs> about um, finding people not having enough time for pleasure. And it made me think that I think a lot of people, and I've been here before too, view pleasure as a luxury yes. instead of a basic need. Yes. Which is so interesting. Like think of how many things, I mean, I literally am still culprit to this to this day, where I'll put so many things in front of my pleasure and then be like, oh my God, I left. No wonder I have, like, haven't felt this level of intimacy, intimacy with myself or whoever I'm bringing into the dynamic, right? Like I, I've been viewing it as a luxury instead of an essential. So yes, a thousand percent. Yes. <laughs> um, last month on my Substack, I talked about pleasure all month and really focused on helping folks bring that back to the forefront because, and you really, you talk about this a lot, developing a daily pleasure practice. It is something that when I think you talk about with people, they initially are like, what, what kind of woo woo nonsense is that? Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> or how what how privileged are you that you get to have pleasure? And um, I really appreciate the uh, idea of really being intentional around pleasure on a daily basis. And in fact, um, Euphemia Russell wrote a book called Slow Pleasure. And in it, she uses this language of microdosing pleasure. And I thought that was a really, right? I love it. It's such a great idea to think about, okay, if I don't have the time, space, or bandwidth to do something that's so big in pleasure, that's what people really think sometimes. I have to go big or go home, but we don't. It can be something so little, like taking 30 seconds to enjoy your surroundings. Yes. That's accessible to us. Yes, yeah. 100%. I'm so happy that you brought this up because I've so it's funny because I, I find that a lot of um, ideas and implantations of ideas that are happening like on the internet and like just in real life, like plant seeds within many different heads. <laughs> that was a weird way. Of, <laughs> that was a very odd sentence. We'll move on from that. <laughs> Anyways, though, you saying microdosing pleasure, I've been experimenting with the this concept called like the of of micro moments, really, where it's just like this idea of, you know what? Well, I actually don't have the amount of time for something, you know, it could be anything, but I'm gonna instead of the all or nothing approach of, well, I don't have 30 minutes to meditate, so I'm not gonna meditate. Well, I have 60 seconds. I have 90 seconds. Can I just close my eyes and breathe for a second? And that to me has been so nourishing and it's taken the load off because it's made it not seem like such a, like what we were saying, it's making it not seem like this larger than life concept. Like it, it's making it feel like I can attain a basic need versus the idea of pleasure being a luxury, which let's be real when we can carve out a lot of time for pleasure. Heck yeah, that feels so good, but it's just not always possible. So it's, I love this idea of microdosing it, micro moments, whatever, you know, term and an approach you want to see it as, but it's, I think so, so healthy and exciting. And yes, like you said, I do talk a lot about building a pleasure practice into your day, which is really just asking yourself, What's one thing I can do for myself today in the name of desire, in the name of joy, in the name of ease, whatever approach you want it to be? You know, sometimes I'm like, oof, I just want a really delicious like matcha from down the coffee shop. So it can be really attainable. Yes. And I want to bring this idea to people who are in long-term partnerships, right? We often start to take our partners for granted in long-term partnerships because of habituation, not necessarily because we don't care, although sometimes people do have a lot of resentments and a lot of stuff, a lot of residue that gets in the way of their connection. But separate from that, this idea of habituation where we see each other all the time, we're so familiar with each other, we stop showing up for the granular moments because they sort of bleed into what is familiar. But the idea of these micro moments and or micro dosing of pleasure in your partnership is a really important thing to weave back into the tapestry of your connection and into your erotic foundational foreplay, right? Every little micro moment that you share that is affection in between your sexual encounters together builds tension, builds excitement, builds mm -hmm. enthusiasm, builds connection. It says to your partner, I care about you. I think about you. I'm attuning to you. And when couples start to 
build that back into their everyday relational practice, they start to see shifts in their sexual desire. Wow. It doesn't happen right away because sometimes there's been a bit of a desert and that earth needs to be wet <laughs> until it can start to foster some growth. Yes. Um, but literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it really is important for people to start tending to that you know, yes. it, it, like erotic earth between them and to cultivate more pleasure. Oh my God. I love that term, erotic earth. <laughs> um, it reminds me into like br- really bring this home. I saw this really great video someone posted about how um, they kind of broke down the sense of what community meant for them. And they just filmed, you know, kind of two to five second clips of their day walking through, they were in New York City, you know, them picking up they're dry cleaning and saying hi to the like person who owns the shop. And they, they put, they basically compiled together all these micro moments. And then they were like, see this at the end. And like, they played it all together really fast is my sense of community. Like these, all these little things that seem so unimportant actually are so important. And I loved it. It was like, it gave me chills when I saw it. And this is what it's kind of translating for me into an intimate life as well, right? Like these smaller moments that you don't think are as important are actually so impactful to your larger um, definition and meaning of what an intimate life is. Love that. That is so beautiful. Yeah. our, Our partnerships are our first source of community. Right. And if you're not in partnership with a romantic partner, everyone around you is your first source of community. Every opportunity. Love that. Even like having that moment at the dry cleaner does feel like such an important place to recognize the connection potential. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's great. Let's go on to another question. Okay. Um, oh. I actually would love to ask you this. Okay. Someone says, how can I overcome performance anxiety and improve my sexual performance? Mm. This is such a great question. Um, And it happens so frequently for people of all genders because there's so much that we, again, assign to sex in terms of meaning around our identity, our worth, um, our opportunities to be in relationship. But I think the first step is to, one, rule out any medical conditions that might be happening. Um, Assuming there are no medication issues or or medical issues that might be contributing to some kind of anxiety, um, I really encourage folks to start doing some deeper work around regulating their nervous systems and then learning how to regulate their anxiety in non-sexual ways that can be really useful in learning how to regulate their anxiety in sexual situations. Some of that is cognitive, but a lot of it is body-based work and learning how to recognize the earlier signs of dysregulation or anxiety that come up in your body and bring yourself back into a state of relaxation it's really hard to be receptive to pleasure and to create opportunities for pleasure in that state of anxiety for most people. Yeah, absolutely. Your body literally is not receptive to it when you're in such a heightened state. So this kind of is making me think a bit too, you know, if, if someone's listening and they're like, yeah, I am the person who really is like putting my pleasure on the back burner because I'm prioritizing so many other things that then I get to the end of the day and I'm like, oh yeah, like intimacy. Um, What is your advice 
and and that's where I see maybe performance anxiety, one of the many reasons for, because mm-hmm. um, there are a plethora of ways that it can impact you. But I can also see that being a pretty uh, prevalent concept if you're not prioritizing it and you're just kind of trying to squeeze it in last minute, check off a to-do list item, mm-hmm. um, and it's not happening. So what is your advice around kind of making sure that we're really getting um, – allowing our nervous system to relax and not feeling so much pressure to... I think a lot of folks would benefit from uncoupling this idea of sexual performance from how, again, they see themselves as individuals. We are taught to perform sex. And that's a dangerous mindset to enter into sex having because it does take you out of your own body a lot of the time because you're so focused on, am I performing this role? Am I pleasing this other person? And it ignores certain truths like we are responsible for our own orgasm. And that doesn't mean that our partner plays no role in that, in our pleasure, but we have to be able to be communicative about what we're experiencing in our bodies and ask for what we need and want. And here's the thing. In sex, mutuality is really important. And I think when we have this performance mindset, we go in abandoning our own pleasure and showing up in this performative way. Let me show you how great I am. Let me show you what an amazing lover I am. Mm. Or let me give you all these orgasms. And that's a t- it's a pretty significant self-abandonment that can perpetuate some of that anxiety. When we go into sex as a co-created opportunity for pleasure with a partner, um, there's an expectation of mutuality. And when that's really clearly stated and respected between two people, there's a lot of time to be back in your body, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not about, are you performing this? Are you doing it right? Quote, unquote, air, you know, all the air quotes there. Um, So really shifting away from a performance perspective is an important Um, step in helping your body realize like, hey, if you don't get an erection or you're not having an orgasm, that's okay. Not every sexual experience needs to include those things. Mm, That's huge. Yes. I I really like that you brought that up um, because a lot of the narrative that we've been introduced to around sex is it is performance driven. It is goal oriented and um we can it's it's hard to not get caught up in that all the time because that's the messaging we've been delivered but i love the reframe of you know let's explore one another let's enjoy one another without having to have a specific outcome and i think you know that's probably why a lot of people have gone to situations where they've like faked orgasms, where they've, you know, we've done so many things to mimic a performance instead of actually just being in our bodies sometimes. And I love, I love, that's almost such a great homework assignment, right? Like (laughs) go be intimate without the expectation of any sort of end goal. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right. Who decided that the orgasm was the goalpost here for me personally? An orgasm is great, but if it doesn't happen, that doesn't erase the pleasure right. that did exist in the rest of the sexual experience. 
you know, I enter into every sexual experience looking for opportunities of passion, connection, the kinds of sensory experiences that I like, the kind of fantasy that's really interesting. And all of that lights me up. And if an orgasm is a part of that, amazing. And if it's not, that's also amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I love that. And it allows, like you were just saying, I like, I, I love what you just said, because to me, it's like being able to puzzle piece all the different things that I was going to say that scratch your itch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> but it's true because I think it's like, you know, you you can go in wanting to explore fantasy. You can go in wanting to explore different erogenous zones. And I think that is such a playful nature that has such exciting outcomes that aren't, it's like the orgasm is like one thing of the many plethora of ways that you can experience the joy and eroticism of play and intimacy. So it's just, again, going back to what we said at the way beginning, like expanding your definition and outlook of what the like connection can be and what what a dynamic can play out to be. Mm-hmm. So exciting. It is. It really is. <laughs> Do you need a minute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys, I need a I need a nice cool sip of water. <laughs> oh well, I think one of the questions that often comes up for me around this topic is how do I approach sex in casual dating? Right, because there's a, there's some benefit to having a long term partner in the sense that you're a little bit more familiar with each other's bodies, hopefully, and you have more comfort with each other's scripts. Again, hopefully, um, but when you're just getting to know someone, there's a lot of confusion mm-hmm. about dating and how do I weave in sex? How do I ask for what I need? Am I too much? Am I not enough? What would you say to folks who are getting to know someone and they are having concerns about how to introduce sex into the mix? Mm, mm. I think, so first off, um, I think, I'll get to the introduction piece in a second, but I think the first time you have sex with a new partner, and let's say it might not have been exactly what you thought it would be, or it's not that great, like it's good, not great. Mm. Um, I say give it a second chance because I think it takes a second for people to establish a dialogue between bodies, between how you connect with someone over time. And the the first time that like people come together, you know, sometimes someone might have been in a longer term partnership and might be familiar with how they used to connect with someone else. Like you're learning a whole new language. An entire new sex script is being developed. So I actually think, um, like give it a chance, give it a couple times. I've like had a couple of people who've written in being like, my first kiss was so bad, but the chemistry was so good leading up to it. What do I do? I'm like, hold it out. Just, just wait a second. Like just give, give everybody a little bit of time. And a lot of the time, People are like, okay, yeah, we figured it out. We we came we came to terms. But I think when it comes to introducing um, uh, a sexual experience to a new partner, I think it similarly to what I just said, like it is it is a bit of a phased approach. I think the first and most important thing is just aligning on very very basic values. You know, um, does this person respect? 
you know, how I want to approach this. Do they respect my uh, safer sex practices? That can look different for everybody. You know, you are the one who gets to determine what safe sex means for you. Um, and and is this feeling consensual and like like there is room for this to be co-created. You know, if you enter an experience where you're like, wow, that was like, there was no room for me in there. You know, that's a bit of a, no, I don't want to say a full red flag, but a yellow flag, right? Like you want to enter into dynamics where you feel like there, there's space to co-create. So I would say kind of aligning on values first and foremost, and then, you know, easing into that, that level of connection where, you know, after you do have some sexual experiences, having those post-play talks expressing your needs and your desires and kind of um, seeing how you can further develop what that script looks like for you. So I think it's a phased approach. I don't think it's like a, because I think a lot of people are get intimidated. They're like, how do I talk about sex with a new partner? And they, exp- they, they almost think that it needs to be all laid out on the table, like over dinner. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit more, um, there, it's a, there's a more gradual approach. I think so too. And I, I think you can communicate a lot about sex without necessarily writing a dissertation together about <laughs> what your sex is going to be. Yes. But, but it is important to evaluate how is this partner, um, how are we talking about it together? Is it mutual? I really love what you said about kind of being mindful for, is there any room in this for me? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when people are anxious to talk about sex or they're anxious if this person's going to like them um, in general, they want to bypass the hard conversations or the conversations that actually create intimacy and um, more connection between the two people. It's hard. It requires vulnerability. So they bypass that and they don't pay attention necessarily to things like, does this feel mutual? Is there a nice balance and a rhythm here where we're both expressing our needs and we have that time and space to really explore, do we have the same values about sex? Do we want similar kinds of sexual experiences? Are there enough similarities where this is going to be good for both of us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure, passion feels great, but if you're not kind of noticing the other rhythm, sometimes it can leave you kind of one-sided. Yes, 100%. And you said something there that I think is really interesting where a lot of people are like, does this person like me? I love flipping a script being like, wait, wait, oh, give me a hot second. Do I like the person <laughs> I'm sitting in front of, right? Like we we go on dates and into new experiences so often wanting to impress the person in front of us without even taking a beat being like, do I, do I like this person? Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's coming back to performance anxiety. If mm-hmm. we're so worried about is, does this person like me? Will this, will my approach to sex be good enough for them? Right? No, we've got to take that ownership back. Is this good for me? And I don't mean to suggest that people should not consider their partners, but abandoning self and being all focused on, are they going to accept me really does you a disservice in the end because that's a chase, right? It's a chase. And it's often something that will not be sustainable because when somebody is chasing approval, they're often, they're often abandoning their own authenticity. I did have another question for you that I thought of, which I get written in, and I think a lot of people have even asked us this in our talks before, where they're wondering about 
sexual frequency in a longer term partnership. You know, I think in honey, the honeymoon phase of a relationship, a lot of people are like so hot and bothered for each other. They're like ready to go. Um, you know, there's just a lot of like chemistry happening, but what, you know, when things become a little bit more habitualized, you know, people definitely get hung up a bit on the idea of how often one should be having sex and comparing themselves to a lot of people. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, the question of how much sex should I be having? I might counter that question and say, how good is the sex that you're having Ooh, when you're having it? Because a lot of people, again, look at frequency and quantity as some benchmark to how good their sex life is. But instead, um, do you like the sex that you're having? Does it leave you feeling invigorated and connected? Because everyone's so different, right? There are going to be chapters in your life where you don't really have time for as much sex as maybe you had time for previously. But if it's really good sex, that might sustain you. And you might be like, yes, okay. Once a week or once every other week is great because it's so fucking good. (laughs) But if the sex you're having every week or every other week is not the sex that you're really interested in, that, that chasm is going to feel even bigger right? Oh my that, gosh. that like pain of what is our sex life? What does my sex life look like? Is just so much more in your face. I'm so happy you said that. I've actually never heard someone say it like that. And I think that is so important because yeah, you could be having sex three times a week, four times a week, whatever like you think is like a crazy, amazing cadence for you. But is it good sex? Like, <laughs> Is it good? And if it's not like there could there are plenty of people out there who probably are having maybe more frequency in their sex life but hate their sex life yeah. or hate their dynamics so i love that i love that i love that and i think that's such a great reframe because people get hung up on this number mm-hmm. um and the shoulds i should be doing this i should be like this i should be you know more intimate in this way i'm not and i i just think that's so powerful to just when you have that thought and the awareness of it to reframe it and be like, well, how can I actually just bring a much more fulfilling sex life into my life? And what does that look like instead of a number? Yeah. So instead of looking at the frequency, it's really important to look at what are you trying to communicate with each other in in your requests for sex and how much do you enjoy the sex that you're having? Okay. So let's say someone is in a circumstance, like you were saying a moment ago, where they they feel the energetics of their sex life is very much like there is um, there's the entitlement. There's a bit of a power struggle. How do we disarm that? How do we get back to a co-creative space? Yeah, that's a really tough space to be. I think the first thing I usually talk about with people who are in that space is the benefit of humility and really looking at the opposite of entitlement is really uh, where we have to start. So coming into uh, uh, the conversation with humility and curiosity about what does sex represent to you and what are you trying to get out of it and let's process the resentment and anger that you are holding on to, whether it's related to your current partner or it existed from previous experiences or other outside stressors. Usually we have two paths to entitlement, resentment that's just gone unaddressed. It just 
turns into, it morphs into entitlement because our bodies say, oh, it's so, it's so hard to be powerless in this state of resentment. So unconsciously we shift into entitlement because at least that feels activating, like, oh, we could solve the problem now. Mm -hmm. So give me what I've been asking for. Mm -hmm. And that entitlement feels empowering sometimes in our nervous systems, but it feels so gross to the other people around us. Yeah. 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 It's like a reclamation of control, it but it's is. coming out of just a really tough space. It is. And the other path to entitlement is false empowerment, right? If someone has been told that they are entitled to something, they should have something, they can get something, it is theirs to be um, consumed, experienced, felt, all the things, they're not going to have as much capacity to tolerate the distress of delayed gratification or having to have hard conversations that involve negotiation. Mm. And those two paths can be very different. Sometimes it's, uh, they're both online. But when we're looking at entitlement sexually, that's an uh, immediate recalibration in the partnership. We've got to look at what's happening in the power dynamics, the control dynamics. And I'm always looking for, is there some kind of abuse happening too? Mm -hmm. Because that entitlement um, can be difficult to rein in for folks sometimes Yeah, yeah. without it being addressed. Absolutely. So would you say kind of if you are an experience? Uh, if you are experiencing something like that, would maybe going to sex therapy be a really good step because that's something that you can unpack on different kind of levels? Absolutely. Yes. Sex therapy is a great place to start. Um, specifically seeking out a couples therapist who is also a sex therapist or vice versa, a sex therapist who's also a couples therapist to really make sure that you can capture um, the, the, the training necessary to work with folks in that space and to understand the nuances of those power imbalances because it is really subtle sometimes and little things can become weaponized in a relationship. I mean, something really like silly on the outside, like you put the tube of toothpaste down on the left side of the sink and I've asked you to put it down on the right side of the sink, right? We get so far down yeah. in these little granular relational exchanges and little things like that can become a focal point of power imbalances and frustrations, just like sex can. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think... I think there's something really interesting there too that you're you're noticing where when it does come to longer term dynamics, you know, I think there are moments where sometimes we just need to have respect for the little things, like how we were talking about micro moments of pleasure, mm -hmm. just like micro moments of like respecting one another too, right? Yes. You know, we can get so like whatever, nonchalant with it, but those things add up and they can become resentful. Totally. Dismissiveness is the killer of intimacy. Mm -hmm. So when we dismiss our partner's little things, like I'll come back to the toothpaste issue. Like if, if your partner has asked you to put the toothpaste here and you consistently put it there, not that you have to do everything that your partner asks you to do, but a conversation and an agreement around why you can't is really important. Yeah. Right. And when you don't have the respect to, of your partner to say, I really hear this request and I want to know why it's important to you. And I'm having a hard time meeting it because da, 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 whatever the, the reason is. So can we find a compromise or a negotiation? Um, that's a respectful conversation. When you just dismiss your partner's request as stupid or frivolous, mm. that kind of shutdown is what is the the catalyst for so many dissolutions. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh. You're reminding me how the other week, like my partner and I were talking and they were like, I really, really respect, like, I, I like need to have the place be a little bit more tidy. Not that I'm an untidy person, but I was dismissing them being like, well, you're exceptionally tidy, like serial killer level tidy. <laughs> and I was like, I can't meet you there. And, <laughs> and I thought it was silly for so long until like we had a really, really good discussion around just like when things are a little bit more organized or when you're a little bit more mindful of where you place your bag or your coat or whatever, that like trickles down into so many other levels of our connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and so anyways, I just, I think that's a really interesting thing to not, to not miss, um, and take seriously. Right. The thing is like when we dismiss our romantic partners, that bleeds into sex too. Yes. Right. Yes. If your partner's constantly like, oh, that's stupid, or I don't know why you need that, or no, I can't, that little dismissive that we do, that is just uh, an eroticism killer. It's it's death in your bed right there. Death in your bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You heard it here, guys. You heard it here. Um, I loved this. This was great. I feel like we could go for a whole other hour on all of these topics. But I think this will just be a nice little teaser for an eventual part two with us because I love doing this with you. This was really wonderful. And and to all of our mutual listeners of the Bedside Podcast and the Modern Intimacy Podcast, please write in and let us know if you want to see more collaborations like this. Tatiana and I have talked about doing some series together and really merging um, the wisdom of our communities and our own experiences together to have more dimensional conversations about sex, love, and relationships. So if you're into it, let us know. Yeah. I have such a fun name for this series. Oh, what is it? I feel it. I feel like it could be like, um, it's like you asked a sex therapist answers or something Love fun that. like that. I don't know. I guys, I like, like Dr. Kate said, let us know if you like this series because I think this would be so fun so we can kind of answer your real questions in real time um, and kind of dismantle what what breaking down intimacy and connection can look like. So this was so much fun. This was really fun. Thank you again for coordinating it and looking forward to next time. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.